Hi, I'm Chris Sarley from Fun Calibre, and today I'm with Matthew Dobbs, manager of the Schroeder Asian Alpha Plus Fund. Thanks for joining us today, Matthew. Delighted. Could I start by asking you to explain to me why someone should consider investing in Asian companies as opposed to sticking to more sort of familiar UK companies? Yeah, I mean, I suppose my feel on that is it's, it's not a, you know, either or. Um, yeah, I, think, I think anyone's got to take their own view on how they position their portfolio. There's some great UK companies. But, you know, I think it is of interest that many UK-based companies, well, I can immediately think of things like you know, Unilever or Diageo or Prudential, you know, have very big interests in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that tells you something about the strategic thinking on, in the C-suite, about where they're going to find growth. Um, a lot of companies in the UK and in the US, you take Apple as a leading provider of smartphones in China, they've identified Asia as a very prospective market for them. Uh, and so we're saying that you know, it's up to you how much you have in Asia. You definitely want a spread of you know, portfolios. Asia has not got the monopoly on great businesses, but there are some great businesses in Asia and it's a good place to do business. So I think anyone with a well-diversified equity portfolio should have some exposure in Asia. It's then we can argue about you know, how much you have in Asia. Given your 30 years plus of experience investing in Asian companies, um, what would be the one tip you'd give to someone who's about to start investing in the region? Uh, that's an easy one. The key thing is governance, it's management. Um, There are many good businesses in Asia, um, but you as a shareholder are always on the outside. Even we're on the outside. We do intensive company meetings and company visits, we talk to senior management. Um, But at the end of the day, you have to trust the management to run the business and you have to trust them to be responsible in terms of shareholder returns, in terms of dividends, in terms of capital allocation. And my sort of byline on that is there is no business so good that bad management won't ruin it for you as an investment. So for me, the absolute key is the assessment and appraisal of management. And there are many management in Asia over time who we simply have never given money to because we don't trust them. The region is obviously deemed to be riskier, so um, perhaps tell me why someone who's, say, under 50 rather than over 50 would consider it. Maybe, maybe just explain why it's accessible to all, really. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that is a good question. I suppose um, Asia is seen as very much more a region for you know, capital return. Um, but I suppose, in a way, half the money we run out of London now is income-oriented equity money. And, um, you know, one of the th- thinking certainly we felt behind launching something like Oriental Income or Asian Income was a feeling that actually those portfolios are going to be more mature companies. They're going to have good balance sheets, good cash flows. They might even be quite boring businesses. But it does mean that the beta on those portfolios is relatively low. And I think it has provided a lower volatility access to a path of the world that is growing fast. Um, but obviously, you know, I would accept that there's a life cycle to investment and as you know, people move into retirement, then they're probably like to say, well, you know, maybe we should have less in equities. But I think that's an issue of equities versus bonds, less Asia versus the rest of the world, because Asia now, you know, if you look at balance sheets in Asia, for example, uh, in aggregate, balance sheets in Asia are stronger than any other region in the world. Is the attraction the same though? I mean, people are living longer in retirement in the decumulation phase. Well, I'm 60. I feel young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it is. There's, there's plenty of time to make money in Asia, and I, I, I think, well, as I say, I think Asia 
you know, one of the issues is, is people talk about the growth in Asia and is it going to be higher overall than the rest of the world? I think Asia, growth in Asia will be a bit higher than developed world, but developed world growth is pretty low. Um, the key to me is more whether there are enough companies operating in Asia who are able to translate that growth into good returns for shareholders. Now, that, that leads us nicely into the next question then about, say, how Asian companies look now versus 20 years ago. What are the investment attractions now versus 20 years ago and, and the differences that yeah. perhaps jump out to you? I, I think the real difference is that perhaps 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the trick for investing in Asia, as in many ways has been the case for emerging markets in a general sense, is that one was buying companies that one felt would be good proxies for the overall growth. So, you know, we held in those days a lot of banks, a lot of kind of infrastructure stocks, um, telecoms, uh, utilities, businesses that actually one might say were just a little bit teeny weeny bit boring. But because they were operating in economies that were growing at five, six, seven, eight, nine percent, they were offering very good returns. I think now it's 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 less simply buying the basic companies enjoying a very high level of, of macroeconomic growth. You know, it may be the case a little bit still in place in India, maybe in some of the emerging ASEAN markets. But actually, a lot of the trick of buying Asia now is a much more sophisticated group of companies, um, you know, catering to the middle class or catering to new services people want, or obviously the IT area, information mm-hmm. technology area. Um, and so it's becoming more stock-specific, and less to do with the overall growth of the cake. It's companies that are able to make more out of what there is in the cake. Okay. Um, obviously, when talking about Asia, we've got China. It's at the centre of all things Asia. Should investors be worried about the, the trade wars of the US, regardless of the news flow that comes out, positive and negative? And you know, also a bit more about slowing growth and increasing debt in China. Is that also a worry that we should be looking at? Well, we, you know, we certainly internally and indeed externally have been talking quite a lot about the issues of debt in China. Uh, you know, before the global financial crisis in 2007, debt to GDP was around 120 um, percent. Now it's it's approaching 300. You mm-hmm. know, China had a period of being quite dependent on a generation of a lot of credit fueled growth. Uh, now, the bad news is they're kind of coming slightly to the end of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is that I think genuinely the authorities realise that, that they cannot any longer rely on simply pressing the big red yeah. button in the corner mark credit. So if you look over the last few years, when the Chinese economy has been under indeed a certain amount of pressure through tariffs, through just sort of fairly slow growth, the authorities have been very disciplined about credit creation. They've been trying to get, they've been allowing some of these smaller banks to go bust. They've been allowing, you know, the wide boys to lose a bit of money Mm -hmm. on sort of excessive leverage. So they are trying to inject a bit of moral hazard. That has got implications for growth and confidence. But in fact, in our view, the good news of that is although that may, may mean that earnings are slower than they would be, the overall risk premium on China should gradually be coming down. I'm not, we're not saying there aren't risks here. You know, more pressure, a stronger dollar would certainly put more pressure on the Chinese currency. But on the whole, our central view is that they will manage their way through this process. And the trade issues obviously are important. But actually, interestingly, in our portfolios, we haven't materially reduced our exposure to trade sort of 
sensitive companies in China and the region. Because actually, where we tend to focus anyway were, were, were companies where we felt that even with tariff pressures, they have such a strong position in their industry as suppliers and such strong supply chains that actually that tariff thing is not that big an issue. And obviously, if, if Trump decides to put tariffs on 100%, then we're in a different game. But that would cause enormous damage to the US economy. So uh, actually, the tariff thing, I think, is something that one could ride through. But you know, we, on the whole, assume that the broader tensions between China and the US are not going to go away. I mean, even if Trump isn't president in the next term, he has changed the basis of the relationship between China and the US. We have to live with that. Okay. We hear a lot about demographics in Asia and young populations and a growing middle class. You know, could you maybe just explain how important they are to the growth story or are they as important as they were? Yeah, I'm surprised you hear quite as much about demographics in, in Asia in a sense. I mean, I, I know that ideas get quite ingrained in people's minds. And there's absolutely no doubt if you look at the demographics in somewhere like the Philippines or Indonesia or India, they're still very strong. And obviously places like Bangladesh, you know, very, very rapid young populations and rapid demographic growth. But actually, I mean, I was in Korea three weeks ago. Korea's demographics right now, in a conventional sense, look worse than Japan's in terms of replacement ratio. So there are some rapidly aging populations in Asia. And China, for example, China's um, normally active age, working age population has already started to decline. Now, in one sense, you could get you know, a bit worried about that. But in another sense, as I said, I think the, the reasons for investing in Asia have changed somewhat. They're no longer just that very high growth rate. Mm-hmm. They are finding the companies who are able to benefit from the trends internally. And you know, if China is growing more slowly, the fact is that 5% growth in China in US dollar terms is as much as 10% growth was 10 years ago because the base is so much bigger. And you know, places like the, the Guangdong Pearl River Delta, Hong Kong, Guangdong, that area, or Shanghai, or the Bohai Gulf, these are now in themselves uh, would be the equivalent of world-leading economies, you know, the size of the UK, the size of Korea, the size of you know, major economies in themselves. So you know, fairly slow growth still means a lot of additional dollars of GDP. Um, it just means that certain areas grow faster than others. Okay. And um, just lastly, maybe tell us about a couple of your opportunities that you're finding in the, um, the Asian Alpha Plus Fund at the moment that you're particularly interested in. Well, I think the broad areas for our portfolios are, um, have been quite stable for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we still like the technology area. Um, you know, we know that a lot of people obsess about growth and value. And yet, you know, a company like Samsung Electronics is valued like a value stock, but definitely has good mm-hmm. growth. So we, we don't have to turn ourselves inside out and say, what's growth, what's value? Um, we, we do still like the softer area of tech, so the internet names in China, um, now looking materially cheaper than their equivalent names in the US. As I said earlier, we, we actually like selectively, we like companies who are exposed to trade, mm-hmm. if they're correctly positioned. They have a product that is, is unique, if you like, and they have pricing power. Um, we like uh, selected financials, particularly areas like India. Um, and India, as I said, is a slightly more traditional emerging market in Asia. You know, it is a, a less penetration of just bank accounts, for example. So well-run banks, leading banks, the private sector banks, not the publicly run ones, but the private sector banks, they know what they're doing. They know how to develop a proper consumer franchise. They know how to deal with the whole internet and fintech. Um, they have very good deposit franchises. You know, these are very strong businesses, so uh, we like those as well. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Matthew. Not at all.
I'm Chris Sarley, and if you'd like more information on the Investing on the Go podcast, please subscribe to Fun Calibre. Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at your time of listening.